Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Oh my God, I did an intro without ruining it. Holy cow. <laughs> Welcome, folks. It's me, the Grill Economist, coming to you live on this special edition of Rogue News. And we have with us Cynthia Chung, who needs no introduction. And if you don't know who she is, she is one half of the dynamic duo that makes up uh, RisingTideFoundation.net as well as CanadianPatriot.org. Cynthia is the editor in chief, the co founder of the Rising Tide Foundation. She's lectured on topics of Schiller's aesthetics. Shakespeare's tragedies, Roman history, the Florentine resistance, among other subjects. She's a writer for Strategic Culture Foundation and a contributing author to the book series Clash of the Two Americas, one of my perennial favorites. Order yours, folks. I'm always pitching Matthew Ayers' book. She's one of the, the contributing authors to that voluminous series. And also, in 2022, she authored her latest book, which I cannot wait for her to go into it. And I can't wait for you to buy it because it is definite recommended reading for yourself. And it should be an integral part of your library. And the book that I'm we're going to be talking about today is The Empire on Which the Black Sun Never Set. The Birth of International Fascism and the Anglo-American Foreign Policy. That's International Fascism. Fascism. Jesus. <laughs> Too much coffee today. Anyway, with that being said, Cynthia, welcome. It is a pleasure to have you back on. Thank What's you for new? Me. Uh, it's, I, I mean, tell us about this book. This is exciting. Um, yeah, I know. Who, who would think that people would get excited over a book on fascism? But, I, you know, everyone, a lot of people are seeing where the wind is blowing and they're a little yeah. bit confused as to how we could find ourselves in such a situation which seems like just in a matter of few years. Um, and so many people didn't see it coming. Um, basically, the book is an overview of uh, 20th century fascism and how in particular, um, after World War II, we were led to believe that we had defeated fascism when in fact, um, the reality of the situation was that leadership on both sides, the allies and the axes, were in support of fascism um, before the war, um, during the war, and afterwards, and that when the when the Germans supposedly lost, there was already an agreement between the the Germans and and other uh, fascists as well to just basically continue um, their plan, but not with a, such a an offensive action. They kind of went underground. Um, somewhat in some of the the things that they did with the the, the state behind secret armies of nato mm -hmm. and then other things uh was to take over institutions like the united nations and also uh Kalergi's pan-europeanism uh this uh, concept of uh the league of nations as well from woodrow wilson was uh basically just reinstated after roosevelt's death um so <clears throat> a lot of people didn't understand that those uh, ideas, like the League of Nations and Pan-Europe, were inherently supportive of uh, fascism. And Pan-Europe is, Kalergi, is basically the, the spiritual father of the European Union. 
today, which explains a lot of um, why Europe is in the situation it was. And uh, I mean, we can get further into it in terms of the League of Nations was the blueprint for the New World Order. Mm-hmm. And uh, the United Nations, which was not supposed to be that, was uh, was turned into that uh, upon Roosevelt's death, who died two weeks before the, the first United Nations conference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, most people think that at the end of World War II, that the only thing that seeped out of Germany and into the United States was Operation Paperclip with the bringing over of Nazi scientists. But people often forget that the very rudiments and foundations of philosophies that gave rise to Hitler were already things that were circulated within technocratic circles here in the United States itself. So, uh, yeah, Cynthia, please uh, you know, get us into that. What happened? What were these agreements... You know, even during the middle of World War II, when it looked like the Germans were about to lose, what are some of these agreements that, that were starting to circulate and foment and, 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 and gain influence, especially within the decision-making circles in the Western world? Well, I guess I'll, I'll start people off. The last time I was on the show, I talked about the um, the secret, uh, the secret, the special relationship between Britain and uh, the United States that was declared by Churchill in his Iron Curtain speech. And um, in that chapter, which is, is it's, a, it's a chapter within the book, I go over how uh, the United States, even though, as Matt has made clear, I'm sure at this point, there's been two Americas, um, the America that was anti-imperial and uh, stood for uh, a completely different vision of, of uh, humankind as something that, that has creativity, that has value in the individual, which is ultimately uh, a sacred potential, and it's a form of wealth, um, that this idea was uh, really revolutionary in terms of uh, a historical advent in like an economic system that could really um, oppose a system of empire. And uh, this system was really taking over. Henry C. Carey had organized the Centennial Exhibition, which had, um, I think, over 30 million people who had attended this exhibition from all around the world, Uh, about 27 countries participated, and it was to share the economic discoveries in the machine tool industry that the United States had um, implemented within such a short span, right, 100 years of it forming itself as a country. Um, So you had Germany, you had Japan, Russia, and China, who were all uh, leaders in starting to implement what we call the American system economics, um, which Henry C. Carey has written about um, extensively. And uh, this was to promote national sovereign, uh, sovereign nation states, sorry. And um, again, if you have sovereign nation states, you, you can't have really a system of empire. And it was focused on economic independence and uh, the ability to, to, implement economic ideas that would create prosperity and and wealth for its people. Um, So this was really bad news for empire. And uh, there's a lot of uh, evidence to believe that the First World War was uh, basically launched to upset this type of uh, partnership that was going on internationally and to create a division amongst these countries so that it became really hard to have economic partnerships with like Germany and then after World War II, Germany and Japan for the Western side. And then on top of it, you know, Churchill launched the uh, the Iron Curtain, which then divided Russia and China. So all of these countries, um, it, it became increasingly, there was more pressure that you couldn't communicate, which was, it's this is very bad news if you want to have that appropriate structure to to have that independence from imperialism. So after the First World War, you also had the phenomenon where all of the empires had also collapsed, but that was because it was a failing system. And I think that they knew that this was going to be also a consequence. And the League of Nations was the concept to reboot the system of empire. And it had the the concept that there would be about six regionalizations in the world. Uh, Africa and Arabia would be largely slave colonies. And you'd have uh, America, Britain, um, you could say a, Habs- an, a, a revived Austro-Hungarian empire, Russia, China, and uh, Japan as uh, parts of these uh, six regionalizations. But Britain 
Uh, and this was made very clear, right? You had people like Leo Amory uh, and Churchill uh, and, and many others that were backing Calergi's view in Britain, but they were very much clear that Britain would never be a part of a European Union. They would be something of their own. And in fact, they would be a sort of overseer of all of the, all of the regions of empire. So they would be the ultimate you know, empire, you could say, because they argued they had interests in, uh, already in every sphere. Um, so Kalergi, who comes from Austria, uh, the, the, the nobility, um, he, he had a, a background actually, which is interesting, his Kudenhova, I don't know if I'm saying his, his name properly, uh, Richard Kudenhova Kalergi, his background, he wrote um, A Crusade for Pan-Europe, which was his kind of first autobiography explaining his uh, idea for Pan-Europe, which is, it's a little bit cleaned up, but at the same time, very telling of how much he was for uh, fascism and working with the fascists. And ultimately, um, he says that, you know, this all starts from my family going back to the Crusades. And uh, the the flag for Pan-Europe is the Crusade flag. And there's a lot of elements of uh, Catholic fascism to the point where he even says that, you know, Pope Pius XII, who was the, the Pope during uh, Mussolini's um, rule when he had sided with Hitler from 1938, I think, or 1939 on, that Pope never criticized what was going on. And he was like, why should he? Uh, Catholicism is inherently uh, a fascist order. Um, so you had this kind of um, element there that there was fascism was, was actually quite popular in a lot of places. And I think that a lot of people thought that it was going to be a shoe in and um, so there was a, a lot of heavy organizing. What's interesting, too, is that it wasn't just uh, fascists that were for this plan for pan-Europe, including Oswald Mosley. And Churchill also was calling for Kalergi's plan by name. Um, but you also had uh, certain Marxists uh, and the Second International that were also supporting this. Um, and, you know, one part near the end of the book, I'm also going over a little bit of the James Burnham Trotsky connection. Um, and Trotsky too has ties with working with uh, the fascists. And uh, James Burnham is considered uh, a spiritual father of uh, neoconservatism. And uh, they were ultimately all working in support of this fascist idea. So when you think about it, looking at everything that was working towards this, um, it's quite amazing that it was forced to go underground. And, uh, you know, that's why James Burnham wrote the managerial revolution in 1941, confident that uh, Nazi Nazism was pretty much going to, to, to be implemented uh, on an international basis, including within the United States. Um, but it was resisted, namely from Roosevelt and Stalin's partnership, which was was very um, opposed uh, within the United States. It was said, you know, that the United States should not intervene in such a war. And it's very clear when you look at where the loudest voices for that were, um, these were people who wanted fascism to come, like Britain and France as well. It was the same thing. Like there was there was no mobilization towards uh, fighting Hitler or Mussolini if they had decided to enter the country. Um, you know, Bertrand Russell, who's a, a Fabian, the Fabians play a prominent role in the story, Bertrand Russell, H.G. Wells, um, they were making the argument that if you resist, you're no different. And uh, the idea was to have as peaceful uh, of a transition to fascism as possible. It's incredible. You know, so you're, you, you, what you stated is very powerful. Most people don't realize is that describe for us the, the difference, how they set up the League of Nations and how that is fundamentally different from when Roosevelt came to power and how the quote unquote, uh, the initial United Nations was. I think a lot of Americans miss that. And in fact, a lot of people in the world miss that. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is that the First World War, again, was a bit of a, a setup, um, because if you look at um, there's like one part in um, chapter two, A Crusade for Pan-Europe, where I go over Kalergi 
um, first makes a tour of Europe, then he goes to Britain. He he meets with certain people, which are are very telling. They're all like pro-fascists. Um, some are more uh, subdued about it. They're not as public about it. And then he goes, he has Max Warburg organizes his tour in the United States. And he meets with a whole bunch of people that he he names by name, um, you know, the, the, the most significant ones. And if you look at the bios of all of these men, including J.P. Morgan and Lamont and Edward Mandel House and so forth. All of them have ties to Woodrow Wilson, um, Walter Lippmann. They all have ties to uh, Woodrow Wilson. They played some role within the League of Nations or the Council for Foreign Relations, which is the uh, American branch of Chatham House. Um, and they uh, often also play a role in the Treaty of Versailles. Um, and the even Calergi writes in his autobiography that it was the Treaty of Versailles and the, um, the, the 1920s depression, which allowed Hitler to come into power. And the, the, there was no way that Hitler was going to be able to have that amount of um, influence over the people if it weren't for those two economic um, situations. So it's very interesting that all of these people play that a role in that. They play a role in the Dahl, uh and the Young Plan, which set up the... Um, the, uh, the the International Settlements Bank. Um, so there's all of this ties, you know, I think Matt has already made it very clear that JP Morgan was also involved in an attempted coup attempt uh, with Rose, uh, against Roosevelt within his first year of being president. So it was clear that they knew where that was going. Yeah. Um, so you had all of these things that uh, were very much working for a very clear agenda. And when Roosevelt came in, Roosevelt is the reason why I think people are so confused about Roosevelt. People have a hard time um, understanding but I mean, they have to realize that this is the, the the nature of the game, right? Like if you're surrounded with a bunch of vipers, you're surrounded with a bunch of like enemies, you can't just simply say, hey, my plan is to upset everything <laughs> that you're working towards. Like that would be very silly. And um, they have to be uh, some somewhat, um, you know, they cannot be fully transparent, unfortunately, when they're talking to the American public, either in certain ways of like what the plan is. So Roosevelt would speak well of Woodrow Wilson. He would speak well of the League of Nations. But if you look at it, he never supported it. And when Kalergi actually visited uh, the United States um, to basically set up this revival of the League of Nations, because at that point it was like considered a dead duck. So Kalergi was trying to revive this idea, this idea too of a United States of Europe, which was a false play on words, right? Because the United States was able to um, set up um, an economic system that allowed for the 13 colonies to basically have um, an economic system that you would want for a country, right? Instead of like three, uh, 13 separate entities, you're not going to have very efficient trade. You're also not going to have, um, you know, good collaboration, because if you want certain projects done, you're not going to be able to necessarily have all of that industrial capability in one location. And Germany was also starting to use that idea with the Zollverein. Um, and so Britain and, uh, you know, other other em empires, they're very good at stealing good ideas, and they kind of twist it around, and they, they try to make it you know, seem like it's the same idea, but it in fact isn't the same thing. So they had twisted around this idea saying, well, we're going to have a United States of Europe, which is, it's the exact opposite, right? Because the American plan is for the support of sovereign nation states, whereas uh, what they were uh, proclaiming for the United States of Europe was that now all of the European countries were going to be reduced to the status of a colony, a United States of Europe, right? They would be the colonies <laughs> of uh Europe, which would be beholden to ultimately the British Empire. So Kalergi was uh, pushing for this, this plan in the United States, and he wasn't getting anywhere because Roosevelt was blocking him. And he even says that in his autobiography, that he was really disappointed because Roosevelt never even agreed to meet with him. So there's uh, I make, a, I, I think, a very strong case to support that Roosevelt was clearly not for um, these ideas 
when it came to action. And uh, his uh, idea was the the big four, which again, Kalergi scoffs at in his autobiography, and um, to which Stalin too, um, in power, this was going to be a very uh, effective plan, which was that Roosevelt viewed that there would be a, an increased decolonialization after World War II. So it wasn't just a war against fascism. It was ultimately a war against imperialism. And I think a lot of people too don't, they get confused because the, the Italian fascists and the German fascists, they called themselves national socialists. They weren't national socialists, they were imperialists. And if you look at everything that they were they were thinking of in terms of ideology and so forth, it's clearly imperial to the point where they even viewed Africa as the breadbasket for Europe. Um, and uh, so... Roosevelt was for this increased decolonialization, and, but he was realistic, right? A lot of these countries that are coming out of maybe even over 100 years of being a colony, you're not going to be able to just like stand on your own two feet right away. And it's going to be a vulnerable situation for these, these countries. As Churchill rightfully makes the point in his Iron Curtain speech, you know, he's saying, well, that's why Britain's imperial power have to be kept in place because if not the Soviets are going to take over all of these these countries if we if we walk out of them what Roosevelt was proposing is that you have the big four which would be Britain the United States Russia and China supposedly all the countries who very much uh, were against fascism right because France it fell you had the Vichy government um, but Britain wasn't actually against fascism if you look at a lot all of the really kind of big players in Britain, they were pretty much all for fascism. It's just uh, they they were some were much more public about it and some were willing to play a longer game to see it through. So um, Roosevelt proposed that uh, under the overseeing of these big four and he made it clear that you would have to have, you know, two from the West and two from the East for it to be more balanced. So you wouldn't have this kind of Cold War division, this East and West Iron Curtain, um, that these countries would be kind of like, you could say, the temporary stewards for these countries to protect them. And because you had the splitting of the interest, um, but everyone's on the same page, there was going to be a less likely, you know, a case where you would have an Iron Curtain type situation. Um, I think that with Roosevelt and Stalin overseeing that, that was going to be a totally feasible plan. Obviously, it depends on who's going to oversee something like that. If you were going to have Truman overseeing something like that, it wasn't going to work. Um, so unfortunately, Roosevelt died, um, you know, a, a few months before the end of the war. And it was two weeks before the first United Nations conference. And that conference, Kalergi also writes about it in his autobiography, was very important because it was going to decide the nature of what the United Nations was going to be. And it was a very clear takeover of what the original concept was, even from Kalergi's own biased you know, view in his autobiography, um, where uh, they actually even had a vote on this particular idea of regionalization, and uh, that was accepted. So at that point, the United Nations was uh, effectively transformed into a League of Nations uh, concept. And we see where it's gotten to today. Um, and it's remarkable, especially when we look at uh, what has been happening within the United Nations and that fascism never died. I mean, you hit a, a vital point here. There were many in London, specifically the city of London, that loved the idea of fascism. And there were many in Wall Street that loved it as well. And we see the continued uh, funding of various projects right after the war, uh, right after World War II, within the United States and within Europe at large. Cynthia, could you speak further on that, please? Uh, yeah, well, um, you've had Alex Craner on uh, a few times. He did um, a very good uh, paper on the how Britain, it was because of Britain's intervention uh, that Germany had acquired such a strong army, for one, with the uh, Munich Agreement or Munich Betrayal, that um, the, the Czechs actually had the strongest army, um, and that because of the 
British dubious diplomatic, you know, kind of uh, intervention in this whole thing, they somehow created a situation where um, the Czechs were were led to believe that certain things were going to happen. Um, and instead, the Germans were basically given the rights to um, access to that military. And um, Alex makes the point that if Germany hadn't acquired that army, um, they would not have been anywhere near as big of a threat um, militarily. And that it was very likely um, at this point in time that uh, France and the Soviet Union were, were going to um, be able to nip that in the bud right away. But increasingly, um, France started to, to, to take a step back. They were, they were working with Britain and uh, basically agreed to unleash Hitler onto the Soviet Union. Um, and again, you see with France, right? Cause like when, um, when Hitler, you know, made his first maneuver, which launched the, the, the war, World War II, I don't know how many people are aware that I think it's the first six months of World War II is called the phony war. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, Britain, Britain was the one who officially declared it, right? And France, like a good little puppy, uh, follows along. But it's called the phony war because it was said in words that the war is launched, but there was actually no action against mm. Hitler. And at the time, people uh, should also be aware, Mussolini was not uh, in support of Hitler. And uh, Mussolini's fascism was actually pretty popular. It was very trendy, you know, and uh, in France and, and Britain and the United States. Um, and, uh, and so the phony war period only ends when Hitler enters France. <laughs> wow. And, and the Vichy government is established. And then it's like, okay, maybe we should actually like do a little bit to intervene. And the thing is, Susan Butler wrote a terrific book on um, the uh, Roosevelt Stalin partnership. I forgot the exact title, but it's pretty much around that as the title. And she did a, a really amazing job just collecting so many memos and quotes from uh, all of the people that played uh, very large roles in this. And, and that was actually the book that kind of introduced me to the personality of Stalin without all of the, the clear baggage that is often unloaded on people whenever his name comes up because she's bringing up the basically the transcriptions of uh, meetings, discussions and, and so forth. So it's a lot more unbiased that way. And um, it's a, uh, uh, what was I talking about? I totally like went blank. No, no, you, 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 you hit a valuable, valuable point. Most people don't realize that that the first six months of the war was just mm -hmm. rhetoric. They were saying war, 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 yeah, before the actual shooting began. So we've had six months of media bombardment, political, uh, uh, uh um, the, the, you know, fanning the flames, so to speak, into a fever pitch before the first bullet even began to fly. Yeah, and that happened after uh, Britain had already given a, an army to uh, Hitler and also uh, um, the Bank of England and the uh, Bank of International Settlements were involved in taking about 5.6 million pounds from the Czech bank as well to, uh, to supply uh, Hitler's army. And, and it's more than that, too, though. There's there's so much more that I haven't looked into, you know, in detail, the 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 banking structure, but like Alan Dulles and Foster Dulles through their law firm, Sullivan and Cromwell. Also, Alan Dulles was a prominent uh, member and, you know, he was president at one point and several other titles of the Council on Foreign Relations. Again, the American branch of Chatham House. Um, and he was also uh, the a prominent oh what he basically had in his own underground oss that he was running which again david talbot's book which goes over alan dulles's uh career um with a, a lot of focus he makes the point that uh john loftus who's this uh nazi hunter he is of the view that roosevelt allowed alan dulles such a free reign because he was keeping tabs on him, seeing who Alan Dulles was rubbing elbows with, because there was always the intention of the, the Nuremberg trials afterwards, which again, Roosevelt uh, wasn't able to oversee. And so there was the intention to expose a lot 
with the kind of intel that he was uh, that he was uh, collecting, according to to John Loftus. Um, so you had an incredible amount of support. J.P. Morgan to actually um, Oswald Mosley's uh, wife, second wife, Diana. Um, we have a, a, a letter with her writing to the Nazis saying that she's going to hook up a meeting between, you know, Morgan House and um, and the Henry Schroeder Bank to uh, to see what they can do for the funding of Hitler and so forth. So um, pretty much all of the institute. Oh, right. The reason why I brought up the Dulles is because they were also involved in the rearming Germany by night as well. They had. They're very, very involved in uh, building up Germany during this entire period after the Treaty of Versailles, but to basically radicalize Germany. And again, this was an attack on what Germany had as a potential for the good and uh, that Germany had to be dismantled because it was it posed a threat under its economic powerhouse as a sovereign nation state. So that's the other thing that people like Germany has such a beautiful culture, right? Like they had, they had created so many uh, geniuses in like the, the classical music and in drama, in, uh, in, in literature, in the sciences and so forth, even France too, right? Leibniz was studying in France. He chose to study in France because that's where all the best scientists were. Um, so these countries had a lot of potential for a great deal of good. And that's what is really sad about the interventions that happened in the in the 20th century. Um, and Germany went through a lot too with the Congress of Vienna during the 19th century to also try to like um, cut that out of them and judge uh, German romanticism, which has connections with the later on uh, Nazism, you know, it's it's not irrelevant that Hitler liked Wagner. Wagner was a consequence of cultural interventions that were clearly being made within Germany to uh, to take advantage of, of certain things that they kind of had in their uh, in their ideological view from their more I guess you could say pagan pagan days. Carl Jung is also a product of this this uh, kind of problem, um, but Germany was basically cut down twice in, from the the two world wars because it actually presented something uh, that was very powerful for the for the good, um, and it also was the bridge always to Russia, right? So that's also why Germany. Um, has had a special relationship, which I think people don't really understand historically with Russia. And it's, uh, it's not so unnatural for Germany to be, you know, um, a kind of brother to Russia. Same thing with the United States when you Correct. look historically at like what the relationship has been with Russia intervening in favor of uh, supporting Lincoln during the Civil War because Britain and France wanted to intervene for the, the Confederate states in, in service to the, the slave empire uh, that was based on cotton and opium. Um, yeah. You know, that's a very good point. We've said it often and often again on this, on the show. I mean, Americans, Russians, and Germans, the natural fit. And the powers that be keep these countries separate and against each other as en enemies because they understand that a united front with the U.S. being part of the multipolar world is absolutely detrimental to the financier class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, people need to understand that the Rose Roosevelt's New Deal, which again was very attacked, I, I think I make a very good point in this book that if you look at a lot of the, the people who were attacking Roosevelt's New Deal, they were again for fascism. And Keynes, who was, uh, you know, pretty public with his support of fascism to the point where his book, I forgot which book it was that was printed in uh, Nazi Germany, he even said that his version of the New Deal, right, because they had to try to appropriate it to their own twisted uh, cause, because Roosevelt's New Deal was like a really big thing. It was going to change everything, right, economically. Keynes was trying to introduce a totalitarian idea of a new deal, right? Because when you have centralized management, it it can be uh, totalitarian, but it can also be something very useful. Um, so he was trying to promote that, that version. He said in his uh, publication for the Nazi Germany version that his system was meant for a totalitarian 
system. That's also why James Burnham in his managerial revolution, he says that, you know, you have either the choice of Nazi Germany for this manager's, you know, um, rule, um, the, the new rule of the technocrats, pretty much. Um, you have Nazi Germany, or you have uh, Stalin's Soviet Union, or you have Roosevelt's uh, um, New Deal type concept. And that's, Again, it's dishonest way of uh, putting all of those groupings together, but it was uh, um, essentially they knew that they would have to make tweaks to this, but it was this idea uh, of just utilizing any kind of centralized uh, power. That's not to say that the answer is to, to decentralize government either. People have to basically understand what is proper economic policy like they have to become economically literate if you're if you're illiterate in any idea in any sphere of knowledge you will always be taken advantage of and that's where the problem lies is that people have been fed um, bad science bad philosophy bad economics in the 20th century in a very purposeful way to dumb people down to not realize what is uh, for the best I mean the the book that I think main uh, John Maynard Keynes wrote. I think it was a Gesellschaft theory. I think it was for in Germany, where he was uh, talking about uh, his version of of, uh, of fascism and how it'd be integrated to uh, the wider European continent. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm not familiar with the name, but he he most definitely did that. <laughs> Absolutely, Cynthia. The Black Sun that never said. How did not? How did fascism really take root after World War II? in the United States, and how did it springboard to many uh, moving out of the realm of think tanks and roundtables into very policy, especially the foreign policy of the United States? Well, this is um, volume one of a volume two series. So in volume two, I'm going to go through a lot more of the cultural, ideological, occult um, aspects of um, how fascism arose. But um, and a, a very important element, too, that I want to say before I forget is that, um, again, the reason why the Italians and the Germans, the they were calling themselves the National Socialists. And you have James Burnham, right, who's working with uh, Trotsky and so forth. But ultimately, he's also a fan of the Italian fascists. He writes a book called, uh, you know, The Machiavellians, um, which is basically off of um, these three prominent Italian fascists. Um, who called themselves the Machiavellians and uh, Georges Sorel, uh, they were very much influenced by this guy who plays a very prominent role in this idea of um, basically using socialism towards the cause of fascism. So I know that for me, this was a very confusing subject of like why you had all of these different groupings of communists and some communists actually were like really resisting fascism. As we see, you know, like in the case of, of, of Italy and Greece, you had the communists who were really at the forefront of fighting fascists, but then you have other groupings of communists or Marxists and, and, and uh, they were on the side of fascism. And uh, basically Georges Sorel was of this idea that, uh, he had revised Marxism so that there could be this um, infiltration of socialism to convert it to fascism. And that's, there was no coincidence that the Germans and the Italians called themselves national socialists because they were on the same page for that kind of a, that kind of a blueprint. In terms of um, what happened after World War II, the pan-Europe concept is very integral, right? The, the the United Nations being taken over as a League of Nations concept is integral. But also there were uh, stay-behind armies that became uh, the secret army of NATO. And uh, this was originally implemented by Churchill. So again, after Roosevelt died, um, Churchill had uh, implement or had thought up Operation Unthinkable, which was uh, considering two scenarios where one... Uh, you would need stay-behind armies in case the Soviet Union were to invade Western Europe after the Nazis were uh, defeated. And uh, scenario two, that the West would actually launch an attack on the Soviet Union without the Soviet Union having done anything except fight the fascists. So obviously that one was going to be a harder one to justify. So a lot of people think that Operation Unthinkable never like was carried through, but actually that first 
blueprint was carried through. There were secret armies that stayed behind, including run by Nazis. And the West was uh, immediately in support of, of this. So um, Nazis, fascists were immediately incorporated into a military structure um, within the Western sphere and also the, the surveillance system. Like I think Reinhard Gellin is a pretty well-known case that he was brought back to uh, oversee West Germany's um, security apparatus. And he was a, a, a top Nazi uh, who was running the intelligence aspect of, of uh, the Nazis. And actually Franz Six, who played a big role in organizing the what would be the Nazi planned invasion of Britain. He also uh, was a part of this Gellin organization Alan Dell has played a big role in, you know, setting this up as well. Um, and he was, for uh, whatever reason, put in prison for like two, two or four years or something, was released and he was allowed to, to again, rejoin the Gellin organization. Uh, you have Otto Skorzeny, who's a really prominent, he, he basically is a very high level player for the Gladio, which is basically the stay behind armies. And he uh, later on, did a lot of training in the Middle East. He trained the Egyptian uh, army. He trained a lot of other uh, um, armies within the Middle East in terror tactics. And that's basically what the focus was, was when the Soviet Union never invaded, they actually justified that there was a need to create uh, terrorist acts against the citizens of Europe and to even um, violently remove uh, elected leaders under the guise of uh, communist terrorists. It's not to say that there weren't communist terrorism, but when you look at the really big incidents that have happened historically, they um, have largely been proved at this point to have come from this apparatus, unfortunately. And um, so and it's very much tied into what we see today in terms of the Islamic terrorism. None of these things are natural phenomenons, but they're there to create um, terror so that you can move people towards the goal of, you know, uh, less civil liberties and uh, more towards a, a justification for far right wing government type policies, which we see now to an extreme degree uh, today. And uh, this stay behind force, um, this eventually led to Operation Gladio, I assume. Yes, this this became uh, the, it's called Gladio because that was the name mm -hmm. of the Italian um, secret armies. And it just ended up being the name used for all of them. And it was only like fairly recently exposed. Um, it was in the early 90s in Italy that like there was a whole controversy um, and it was found out that there was these these stay behind armies because Italy went through it very uh, a very difficult time. They went through about two decades or more of what is called the years of lead where they had a lot of uh, terrorist attacks and um, people like Aldo Moro were killed that are suspected to have been killed by this, um, this apparatus. Um, and uh, basically the OPC as well, the rogue branch of the CIA was uh, under Alan Dulles and Frank Weisner was working for this element of uh, Gladio. Again, Gladio being just like an the word for it on an international scale at this point. And the Frank uh, Church Senate Committee hearings, the infamous, you know, Church Senate Committee hearings that were investigating the CIA for their um, criminal actions, basically, even said that the OPCs, the reason for the OPCs formation was largely justified to intervene in European elections. And that Italy, Italy was one, it was the first country where they intervened in a post-World War II election, again, to make sure that there wasn't going to be any um, communists gaining ground and that it was going to be, you know, the, the fascists, in this case, the Christian Democrats, in Italy who held fascists uh, within that party who were gonna hold control. People also should be aware that in Greece, um, Greece fought a very, Greece later became a central branch of Gladio. And it's a really sad story because Greece was really doing well fighting against the fascists. They had um, fought Mussolini's forces out of Greece. Um, and then you had the Nazis who came in and Britain was originally 
siding, uh, fighting side by side the Greeks. But then in 43, uh, Churchill decides uh, the, com the Greek communists are doing too well. Um, and uh, so the British forces were told to basically start fighting the Greek communists in the midst of fighting the Nazis. Um, in 43, and also in support of reinstating the, the corrupt king that they had overthrown, who was in support of fascism and a totalitarian system. And there's even, uh, Daniel Ganser did uh, a really great book, uh, NATO Secret Armies, um, where they e Britain even has the public statement that Britain will always support the monarchy. Um, and so the, the, the British basically tortured and imprisoned, uh, like terrorized the Greeks during this period. And then there was a certain point because the Greeks kept fighting that the British just didn't have the resources or whatever. So they asked the Americans to come in. And this was the formation of the Truman Doctrine, which was the, the justification for the United States entry into a whole bunch of other countries afterwards. This was what started the whole thing. And uh, the Americans entered Greece to start fighting the communists as well. This went on after World War II. It continued the fight. And they actually had chemical warfare. They, they poured napalm on the Greek people because they did not accept the outcome that there could be uh, a communist uh, government in Greece, despite them having fought the fascists. And um, Greece was uh, eventually subdued and made a, a, a NATO member. And at that point, it's been a very, Athens has been a, a, a gladio stronghold where a lot of the Middle, Middle East gladio operations were launched out of uh, Athens, which recently uh, one of the Turkey uh, ministers even referenced that 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 is still going on. Very well said and very important points. Where are we today right now with the session? I know you're working on a, a, a secondary novel and, but actually even better yet, what are some of the main highlights of what you've written in regards to the black sun that never set? Um, Again, for, for this book, it doesn't really focus on um, the occult directly. Um, so I don't really go too much into um, any of, of, of those elements, which it's, um, it's a super interesting subject. This, this volume two is going to be scary, but also a lot of fun to, to, to write. But I, I would say instead of focusing on the occult uh, for because this book doesn't focus on the, the occult volume too well, it does go over the concept of scientific fascism, which um, again, the Fabian Society plays a big role in this. Um, and H.G. Wells, uh, you know, is not some innocent uh, sci-fi writer. Oswald Mosley even says that his view for scientific fascism was basically, you know, the model that he chose to, to follow and continued to follow, you know, after World War II. So where we are today, um, in terms of this kind of, uh, you know, science gone haywire, uh, was very much, again, the, the view that you can trace back even to uh, Thomas Huxley, in terms of the kinds of interventions that they were making in the sciences um, with the advent of Darwinism. And there's no um, coincidence that the Fabian Society was promoting Marxism and Darwinism at the same time, um, but ultimately towards the goal of a, of a, a fascist uh, a fascist state. Um, and that Britain basically was not able to do anything without having taken over the United States. So the United States, you know, basically became a kind of hollowed out, you know, kind of a, appendage to the British Empire after World War II, especially seen with like the signing of the NSC 75, where, where the United States actually said, uh, our to defend the free world, we're going to have to defend British colonial interests. That's it pretty much says that verbatim. Um, insane. In that. Absolutely insane. Yeah. So I would say that the lessons, the reason why I wrote this 
um, which I think is very important for people to read. And there's a lot that I didn't cover um, in this interview. I also go through the city of London. I go through the uh, the heroin trade and how this fits into um, funding these uh, types of structures. Um, Nixon's war on drugs. Um, and uh, I go through the, the Mufti of Jerusalem as well as uh, some other stuff. Um, but the reason why I want to go through this is because I think that people um, are they largely don't want to look at history. Uh, I find too many people are not interested in history. But the thing is, is that today, you know, we're being fed a lot of lies, or there's like a lot of people who've just kind of like recently, you could say, woke up and are trying to explain things to other people that, you know, you just, you can't just expect to take a leadership role just like that without knowing how we got here. And uh, there's a lot of a blame game going on, especially in, in blaming Russia and China for all of the, the, the ills in the, the world. But if you look at this historical trajectory, it's very clear that that is not the case. And um, by understanding where this came from and also understanding you know, what, it, what was opposing this, you can look at that kind of, um, you know, structure and, and see that the solutions actually lie within this study of history. Um, and the solution is act, a lot of people are, are kind of like, they feel that it's hopeless at this point. But that's exactly what they were saying during World War II. You know, they said there's no point in resisting Nazism. It's a done deal. Um, and we see now that that was a very if people had gone through with that, that would have been a really bad outcome. And we're in a very similar situation today. We're, we're actually in a better situation because there's actually more opposition internationally to this fascist world order that's trying to be re-implemented. And people have to become aware that there is that other uh, side that's uh, opposing this and that there's some very competent um, you know, economic solutions to this as well, because it ultimately a huge chunk of this lies in in your economic policy, because the economic policy ultimately defines how you view your people, how you define humankind. Do you define humankind as cattle or do you define humankind as a creative individual that has worth in your society? Absolutely. Very well said, Cynthia. Very well said. And when is your book available? It's available. <laughs> Fantastic. And folks, you can get the book over at, uh, I believe it's the rising time foundation.net. Well, the best way to do it is to go through my Substack, uh, Cynthia Chung, uh, Substack.com through glass darkly. Um, you can also find it on Amazon. Um, the empire in which the black sun never set the birth of international fascism and Anglo-American foreign policy. Fantastic. Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us and sharing this amazing insight with us. Uh, once again, folks, get the book, The Black Sun Never Set, The Birth of International Fascism and the Anglo-American Foreign Policy. Amazing read. I can't wait to get it for myself. Cynthia, thank you once again. No problem. Thank you all for listening in.